Hey, everybody, and welcome to Views on View. I'm Ari Clark, UI UX engineer at Liquid. And today on our panel, we have Elizabeth Fine, View developer. Hi, everyone. And Ben Hong, senior front end engineer with the Meltano team at GitLab. Hello. Really? (laughs) (laughs) I've been watching a lot of Lucifer, right? Okay, okay. Fair enough. And today, our guest is the wonderful Michelle Sinowicz. Michelle, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi. I'm Michelle Sinowitz. I am a senior front-end engineer at Box Media. I work remotely from the Tampa Bay area of Florida, and I use Vue.js, and I love it. Don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Tidelift, the enterprise-ready open-source software managed-for-use solution. Tidelift provides commercial support and maintenance for the open source dependencies you use to build your applications, backed by the project maintainers. Save time, reduce risk, and improve code health. The Tidelift subscription is managed open source for application development teams. It covers millions of open source projects across JavaScript, Python, Java, PHP, Ruby, .NET, and more. Your subscription includes security updates from Tidelift security response team that coordinates patches for new breaking security vulnerabilities and alerts immediately through a private channel so your software supply chain is always secure. Tidelift also verifies license information to enable easy policy enforcement and adds intellectual property indemnification to cover creators and users in case something goes wrong. You always have a 100% up-to-date bill of materials for your dependencies to share with your legal team, customers, and partners. Tidelift ensures the software you rely on keeps working as long as you need it to work. Your managed dependencies are actively maintained and we recruit additional maintainers when required. Tidelift helps you choose the best open source packages from the start and then guides you through the updates to stay on the best releases as new issues arise. Take a seat at the table with the creators behind the software you use. Tidelift's participating maintainers are more income as their software is used by more subscribers, so they're interested in knowing what you need. Tidelift supports GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, and more. They support every cloud platform and other development targets too. The bottom line is you get all the capabilities you expect and require from commercial software, but now from the key open source software you depend on. Check them out at devchat.tv slash Tidelift. You have been on the show before, but for people who haven't, let's let's just talk about how you got into development a little bit first and your history with various frameworks. Sure. So I'm very old school. I got into development because I was in design in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I transitioned over to being a front-end developer. I've worked my way up from your very basic HTML CSS to all sorts of JavaScript frameworks and backend technologies. The frameworks that I've worked with have not necessarily been JavaScript all the way through. I've worked with templating systems and frameworks for Python and PHP and currently uh the projects that I work on typically have a Ruby on Rails setup. And uh, the last time that I was on this podcast, I talked about a project that I t- undertook where we built a Vue.js front end on top of a Ruby on Rails project. And we talked about that. Um, I believe the title of the podcast was Redesigning for State Management. That was a, a big thing that we undertook And that was like my foray into working with Vue.js overall. And today I came to discuss something that that comes up a little bit, I guess you could say it has a lot more touch points than just building a Vue.js framework. In this case today, I want to talk about uh, prototyping and the design cycle. 
you probably don't hear a lot of people talking about design on this podcast. <laughs> More than you would imagine. But yeah, when I hear the word design, I'm like, what's that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Why don't we talk about uh, what exactly de- design means in this context? So I'll tell you a little story. I have recently been approached by a number of developers who are looking for ways to, they're looking for someone to give them feedback on their portfolio and their resume and find their way into either their next job or their first job as a front end engineer. And I recently was approached by someone who was senior level, who I did not know personally, got my contact information from another community that I'm involved in and asked me, you know, about my process in finding my job. And there really isn't much to tell as far as my process in finding my job. I applied for jobs and I interviewed for jobs and I got the job. But I took a look at, at this person's resume and, and their information and, and they have been a front-end engineer as long as I have been a front-end engineer. And everything in the resume was a listing of what framework, what technology stack, what framework and what technology stack, what framework and what technology stack. And it was like a repetitive thing of, of lists of technologies. And then I clicked on this person's link to their portfolio and their user experience in their portfolio was probably the number two reason why they weren't getting interviews. This portfolio was really like, it was inaccessible. It was not understandable. It didn't showcase anything visual at all. And it was a terrible user experience. And I said to myself, how does this person get to be a front-end engineer for as long as I have been and has no concept of user experience or design? And it got me thinking how I have transitioned to this from a design background As a front-end developer, I've always worked with a designer in all of the projects that I've worked on. And this is over a decade worth of work at different companies where there's always a design process. There's always some connection between me, the front-end engineer, and the user experience and the users. I came to the conclusion that there it is entirely possible to have a lifetime of experience in front-end development and never deal with design and user experience. And that shook me a lot. And I was, I was, as you can tell, like the story stuck with me. <laughs> so what I saw at, at Vox where I work is that we have a design cycle. We have design team, we have a user research team. We, people test our designs before we code them. And someone brought up this idea that when one of our designers brought up the idea that whenever we design something, whenever we go through a cycle of design, it is in waterfall style. And if you're not familiar with what waterfall style means, it means that the requirements come from a top level person or top level place. And then they trickle down to the next person, which is probably the designer. And then that trickles down to a programmer or front-end developer, and then the front-end developer does the work, and that trickles down to 
a QA process or, or a usability testing process. And then it just gets deployed. And now we just, it's in maintenance. Like it's done. It starts at the top and it just takes these steps downward to the bottom and then we're finished with it. And we don't revisit it unless there's a problem, right? You have a bug or you have an issue. It didn't occur to me until this designer said it in a meeting that, that we don't have a feedback loop at the level of a front end engineer. Like we don't have a feedback loop where I'm working on something and I work with the user or I see what the user sees and I get to come back and say, Hey, you know, maybe this design doesn't exactly fit the bill and we should make a change. Not in any official capacity. Not that I haven't done that because I have, because I pay very close attention to the user experience because design is ingrained in my, you know, my skill set. But as a pathway to getting work done, we have all of these things that we do to satisfy the user from the top down, but we don't have, we only get into an iterative cycle when there's a problem either at the design level. So if you can imagine this waterfall that starts at the top with a set of requirements and then goes down to the designer gets feedback, right, from whoever gave them the requirements in the first place. And that becomes a feedback loop between the designer and the person feeding them requirements. So you can get stuck in that loop, um, but it's not a full cycle. It's just a feedback loop at the top. And then it comes down to development. And in most cases, I will say that once it goes to development, hey, I have a design, I'm building the design, I've coded the design, now the design goes to the next step and I don't see it again because I've written the code and now we've moved on. It only becomes a cycle and a feedback loop if we get to the end stage and we've missed the mark. Something doesn't work. There's a bug. You know, like people are trying to use it and they can't for whatever reason. Uh, and then we start all the way at the top of the waterfall. So if you can imagine these feedback loops and waterfall steps of, of a process, you need to have a something in the middle that lets you cycle through instead of waterfall down. And so the question comes up, right? How do we improve the system? How do we improve this? How do we make it not waterfall style design handoff? You know, how do we get the users or the user research team or even the developers involved in the cycle that the design goes through in order to make this product the right product for the user. So is all of that clear before I go any further? Yes. No, you're, uh, what you're describing, like I've had that exact experience where the feedback loop happened really late in the game. And it was, I was in full panic mode because we were supposed, like we were on the eve of release and I finally like, you know, put it in front of some people And it became super clear, super fast that there was a lot of confusion. It was not particularly usable. Like it was one of those things where like it should have been so obvious to me to to put it in front of somebody other than like myself and the other developer at the time to, to get feedback. But, you know, we had been staring at it for so long that to us it was usable. And as soon as I put it in front of people who had never seen it before... I, yeah, I had the horrific realization that 
I could not let this out into the wild without some iteration. So, and that was when, yeah, I enlisted the help of our, uh, our director and we started usability testing internally because startup. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, what is usability testing? So when we talk about uh, user tests and usability testing, we want to put something in front of the users and let them let us know if they understand what's happening. What they need is a present in the, the what they're testing. And in most cases, especially with this traditional waterfall that I'm talking about, even if you bring in usability testing to the waterfall, usability testing typically takes place at the design phase, right? So requirements come from the top, they go down to the designer, the designer works in a feedback cycle with the requirements person or people, and then they say, okay, before we code this, let's make sure it tests well with users. And then you would, I guess, the preferred method of user testing is to be able to bring people physically to your, your space and have somebody sit with them and watch them go through your mock or your design or whatever you've, you've created so far to let them verify for you what it should look like and how it should function. And that was where I saw the fallacy. I saw this as like, and this happened also among uh, like my teammates, just my development team, just looking at a design and, and kind of looking at mocks of a design from a designer who would kind of click through and show us things. In my show notes, uh, I point to a, um, a blog post about bad design memes. So there's this one really classic design meme where uh, there's a park and the park is like beautifully paved and perfectly situated. And there's like a corner that you would need to turn if you were walking down this path. And then there's a person who's completely cut through the grass to shorten the distance right? To make a diagonal where there was not a diagonal paved in the park. And they're walking on a patch of dirt that has been obviously overtrodden by people trying to cut that corner by going diagonal. And the meme calls the person walking on the dirt, the user experience and the paved areas, the design. It gets a couple of laughs whenever I show it to people like, ah, yeah, that's funny because the user doesn't want to go the route you gave them so they make their own pathway. But the interesting thing about this concept is that there's such a thing called a desire path. And this is part of urban planning. So bear with me because I'm getting off, you know, I'm going off on the side a little bit. So with urban planning, when when a park is designed or a campus or, or a building or sidewalk, when it's designed, it's designed with specific things in mind. And they will put grass down and people who don't want to use the pathway that's paved will walk on the grass. They will take the shortcut. And we call that shortcut a desire path. And what some urban planning outlets will do now is they will build in phases. They will build an open grass area and they will let the people who use the grass area trod their own path. 
and that the pathway that they cut in the grass then becomes the desire line. And then they take that desire line and they pave that so that the way that people want to go is the way that you pave, but only after you know which way they want to go. And you're like, okay, who gives a shit about urban planning? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with you. So how can we take that principle and apply it to designing our interfaces? Because it makes sense. Like, listen to what the user wants, but we have these very, you know, generally a static mock-up or something like that that we're showing them, which doesn't give them a lot of room to carve their own path. So how do we break that mold? Right. So that was the question that I also proposed. And it's a bit of a conundrum, but it's basically, how do you build a thing, but not the whole thing, but enough of the thing to test the usefulness of the thing to decide if it's the right thing to build? <laughs> That's a lot of words. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and it's a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. It's only one thing, but there are so many aspects to it. And that was really like the question. If we, if, if a designer puts up like an envision mock and they've taken the time to create the interface and to give you clickable points to get from where you are to where you go, the clickable points are already telling you what to click on. Like these are the things you are allowed to click on. So when I say, okay, take this mock and show me user test. Show me how you would send this to a publication destination. I'm not asking them to show me their desire line. I'm actually challenging them to find the touch points that have already been built, right? I'm challenging them to, to say, have I completely confused you or are you able to figure out exactly what I meant by looking at the touch points in the mock? Oh, man. I feel so, that. I feel that. <laughs> so you're you're not asking them what they want. You're you're leading them yeah. down a path that you've already paid. You're asking them to validate your work at the end of the day. Right. And this is not to say that we shouldn't design at all and we should just let people have free reign. There is a limitation to to designing this stuff, but you know, where do you draw the line over what is completely encasing the user experience in proverbial stone, right? And then forcing other people to tell you whether or not they can handle it and just giving them something that they can use and play with and draw their own desire paths. So we talked about this in terms of being able to prototype. When we look at things like there are multiple like design services that build prototypes, right? And you can feasibly build a really intense prototype with lots of options and you can give that to users and they can try to navigate it, but it's all static design. And again, it's a mat, it's almost like a hunt to find the right set of, of touch points, the right clicks, the right spaces to go, the right pages to go to. And that means you're going to spend a lot of time designing something that you may or may not build, and it may or may not be too much. So to get to a point where you can reasonably design and iterate a build 
and have something that's user testable that gives you a sense of pitfalls, errors, bugs, and desire path for the user, you need to be able to build a prototype. And I have named it, and I people may disagree with this name, but I had to give it a name because I didn't know how else to describe it. So I called it a functional prototype. So essentially what a functional prototype entails, it is a, a component or a set of components. In our case, it's in Vue.js. And it is set up so that we can half build, right? We have a design system. We have a component library. Uh, so I'm not writing tons of custom CSS and I'm not writing tons of custom JavaScript. And we are already using Vue.js frameworks. So it's already reactive. So I don't have to write that out. I don't have to build a separate Vue.js project just to build this prototype. This is a feature prototype. So I'm building out a feature. So let's say boss comes and is like, okay, team, we need to grab a public, we need to create the ability to export a certain amount of data in bulk. So we need an export button in the screen, you know, and we say, okay, but we need to let them select the data that they want to export, right? So we have to show them some way to select data and then show them a button. And then can they see the data? Can they see the button? Do they get a confirmation message? We can ask all these questions. So let's say we want to prototype an export button with a very specific user experience inside of an app that we already have. So do I build the component and like launch it and see if it works? You know, do they design it and then see if it works and then build it and then I build it and then we launch it? How should we do? So I work directly with the designer instead of having the designer design and hand it off. We look at the design system. We look at the components available and we decide where and how things might work for the user. And then I build a functional component of this feature. And this functional component of this feature is going to exist in our production environment. This is the key. This has to go out to production because we need to let users test it. And like I said, I work remotely because my company is remote first and a lot of our users are remotely located. So asking people to come to the office and test something out for us is not a thing. In fact, working with a designer who's in another state, you know, it's all remote. So how does the designer even get to look at it if I don't give them a, a, a way to view it. So all of this has to go to production. So we build something that's encased in a wrapper. I call it the prototype wrapper. It's a dynamic component and it's going to take a very specific component name as a URL parameter. So it's only going to show up for people who definitely want to test it because they've put the URL parameter in the browser and then they will be able to test it and we will be able to either record how it works for them and watch them go through it and ask them questions and that kind of thing. But the, the thing here is, is that certain aspects of it have to be benign, can't actually work. So what I'm really building as this functional prototype is half functional, if you will, <laughs> right? It's not fully functional. It's partly functional. Certain things cannot happen because we're in a production environment. So I've basically worked with the designer 
to build this component with our more piecemeal design system and components to give a sense of a user experience, put it into production, ask several users to engage in video conference for user testing where they can screen share and, and talk as they go. And I can see their mouse move and I can see what they click on and what they don't click on. And the prototype still exists within the working website. So if they accidentally click on something else or they click something real fast and it doesn't respond and there's a race condition or they click a series of functions that I didn't anticipate, I can watch all of that happen on the screen. And then I can see their desire path instead of putting a photo in front of them and saying, what would you click on in order to select all of the data that you would like to export? I'm just (laughs) here, figure out how to export, show me what you got. And I can watch this happen in real time. My designer can watch it happen in real time. The user has the opportunity to create errors, click the wrong thing. They don't see it as a prototype necessarily because it looks like it belongs in the interface and it feels like they're testing a real thing. And the key there is that it really brings up conversation with the user who's testing that you, that you would not have considered before. We took this concept for a test run because it was such a concept and it was none of us had a like a solid grasp on exactly what it would look like when it was finished. And it was just like, you know, just let me tinker a little bit because I can make something work here. And when I built it out and we tested it, it was such a different experience watching a user test from an Envision prototype or a set of design mocks and a bunch of questions from a user researcher of what would you click on? How would you expect this to work? What do you think will happen next? And just letting them click and go and watching them go through it. They move so much faster. They do click the wrong thing. They do click things in an order I wouldn't expect. And we got so much powerful feedback just on the first prototype, the first user test, that it was like, wow, why doesn't everybody do this everywhere with all of their front end? front-end apps. It's just like a thing that everybody should be doing and everybody should be doing it. That's why I'm on the show today (laughs) because I want everybody to do it. You know, I understand that user testing is not necessarily part of the wheelhouse of the front-end developer because of that waterfall situation. We're not part of the design iterations. We're not part of the design cycles but we suffer greatly when that all turns out bad in the maintenance phase <laughs> when people are causing errors and, and bugs are coming back and quick fixes come in. I likened this to, um, and this, if you, if you Google image search this, it should come up bad form forms, right? So here's an image of a comment form that has a submit button and above the submit button in odd spacing and text. And it says, please click submit only once, right? And that is my favorite example of a terrible software lifecycle because somebody built a form, somebody designed a form, they talked to their requirements, they knew what the form needed, they built the form, they 
built the submission, the submit function. They got it all set up. They were ready to go. They deployed it. And then the submit function actually turned out to be so slow on everybody's browsers, on every client machine that was actually trying to submit the form that they would submit multiple times. There was no catch that said, (laughs) this form can only be submitted once on the back end. So then they're being inundated with form submissions from people who are like clicking wildly, click, 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 because nothing looks like it's happening on the front end, right? And the solution to the problem was to put text above the button that says, please click submit only once. I believe that that did not solve a problem for anybody and that that the real situation should have been that there should have been some deduplication on the back end. There should have been some disabling of the form and the button once it was clicked while it was submitting, maybe a loader gift to like let people feel like something was happening with their form that they submitted. If they had user tested this form, they would have figured out real fast that there's a better way to set up this form and build it out so that if the user wants to click forever, they can click forever, or we disable the form and let them think that the form is submitting, even if it's slow. And this is like my perfect example of like, didn't test it, just put it out there on in, in general. And then the fix it in post methodology was to just put a notice above the submit button and cross our fingers that people wouldn't click like crazy. <laughs> it's funny. It's like, I think just in the last week, I've, I've seen a form exactly like that. And for some reason, it never occurred to me that it, that it was an afterthought that they had the disclaimer. I mean, every time I see that, I think, I mean, isn't there some other way you could handle that? But the fact that it arose out of an unforeseen circumstance had never occurred to me. But now I'm like, oh my God, yeah, no, it totally makes sense. That's a Band-Aid. That's exactly <laughs> that reminds me. Have you seen, there's an article, I think it's called, um, it's like the worst volume UI in the world. And it was a bunch of people on Reddit and they basically all came together and tried to design the worst user experience for changing the volume that they possibly could. And there are some examples on this article here. And one of them is like a a volume control with a button that says change. And then every time you press change, it just changes the volume to a new random percent, you know, (laughs) zero to a hundred until you finally land on the one that you want. Then there's another one that has a hundred select or a hundred radio buttons. Oh God. You just select what volume you want. And then there's one checkbox for mute. There's so many good examples, but at first Um, Michelle, I thought you were talking about that, but this is actually a real world example. It wasn't people trying as hard as they can to make the worst use. (laughs) I mean, let's be honest. You don't have to try very hard. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes like you think you're doing the right thing. You really do. And then turns out you're not. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, 
you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. It's crazy how stuck you can get in your own world of, you know, when you are working in that waterfall format and you're staring at the same set of requirements and the same designs and building the same designs and there's just no outside influence. You can get so stuck in your own, you know, expectations of how the prototype is supposed to work. And then, you know, that never occurred to me that when you're showing people static prototypes, you're basically just saying, tell me if what I did makes sense at the same time while you're saying, I'm giving you very specific options of what actually works on this prototype. You know, like you can click a button and something will happen. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. Yeah. So I often hear waterfall contrasted with agile. Is agile kind of the work methodology that you're suggesting, Michelle? Or is that different? Well, when waterfall contrasted with agile is a little more geared toward project management in that um, when something's agile, you have, you have these concepts broken down into small chunks of assignments and you can move your chunked assignments around when you're in an agile workflow. Whereas in a waterfall workflow for project assignments, you get an assignment. It comes from the top. It goes down to the next person. It goes down to the next person. It goes down to the next person and it gets to an end point. So it is a similar concept to what I'm talking about as far as like a design cycle or a software cycle because it's the official waterfall workflow concept is meant to be in contrast with the agile workflow concept. So you're right. This is definitely a concept that I've pulled desperately from project management and applied to design as far as the design cycle goes as part of software development. But even in an agile workflow, as tasks are assigned and things are, are, can be moved around, we could say that this, this version of prototyping that I'm suggesting and recommending for the world is a more agile process because it steps out of the, the, the waterfall style, right? And it, it gives us more of a, a positive feedback loop between multiple tiers of what would have been the waterfall. So we do user testing at Vox. Like we have a user research team and they take on multiple levels of, of research for a company, including usability testing. And there's other stuff that goes into testing what we test and how we decide what to build. But not every company has a user research team and not every company goes through user testing to decide what to build. I want to say it's more typical, especially in the startup world, for someone to have an idea at the top, some stakeholder who says, this is the thing I want to create. This is the thing I want to build. This is the thing I can sell to the users you are the designer, you design this thing and let's talk about it. And then we'll just give it to the developers and they'll build it out and then we'll launch it and see who loves it. Or even then, worse, no designer, 
stakeholder straight to developer, figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) So for people who don't have designers, I will also recommend this type of feature prototyping and feature and functional prototyping work because you will not have to build the whole thing in order to prove that it's a useful thing. You can build part of the thing. That is one of the unexpected pieces of this concept of prototyping that I was coming up with was that, wow, I can build part of the thing. And then if it does test, it's halfway done. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, now that everybody loves it, I can just add a few more lines of code and it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that's really awesome because we're talking about three situations. So the first is you build a feature or out completely and people hate it and don't use it. So you have to go back and fix it, you know, desperately. Or let's say you build two sort of sets of options completely fully functional and you put those both into production and a B test them. And then in that case, you're literally doubling your work and you're going to have to throw out, you know, one feature that you just built, whichever one doesn't work or whichever iteration doesn't work. But in your case, you're kind of doing an in-between stage where you have it in production and it's kind of partway done to the point where if you, you know, you have validated that you need to that you need to go down that path it's probably not too far off to finish but if you decide you need to change it or throw it away it's not so far in that you've wasted a whole bunch of time so you said you are testing these in production and um you wrote an article that i read which sort of details how you're doing that could you go into a little explanation of how you actually have these things in production without exposing you know, the whole world to see your half-finished features. (laughs) So I will preface this with the idea that the applications that I'm using this particular prototype scaffold in are applications that that require login. So our users are, are very specific. And when we want to allow a user to test it, we organize that like a usability test anywhere else where we ask somebody to take the time to join us on a video conference to walk through the prototype. So they are sort of aware that they're working on something. They're looking at something that's not yet part of the user experience. And on their part, there even is a little bit like, whoa, this looks like the actual site and this looks like a finished thing. They don't know what's safe to click on and what's not. And I have to tell them that like, it's, it's okay. Just anything that's prototyped won't actually, <laughs> won't actually work. Just go do your thing. Don't worry about it. When we ask them to, to join us on video conference, we ask them to screen share with us. And we ask them to do what they need to do in order to achieve the desired result, right? We are giving them a URL that we know they can use with a test parameter in the URL. And This is a a thing I built with Vue.js. I'm sure it could be built with other frameworks. It probably works smoothest in Vue because I built it for for a Vue system. In that, so we use Vue Router and we need to be able to pull that parameter in. But part of this is uh, 
So it has to be a logged in user and it ha- they have to know what URL they're going to and they have to know what parameter to use. And we're not publishing actual parameters out to the world. So it's like my blog post is not using any parameters that are real parameters in our app, even though you would still have to be a trusted user in order to get to it. None of those URLs will actually produce a prototype in any of my applications. I, I did fudge it a little bit for the blog post. But the, the key here is that we also want to get to a point where with these functional prototypes, we, we want the speed. The whole point of it was, was to, to speed up the process, right? So we have the designer and the developer working together, right? And we have the usability testing happening sooner rather than later. We have immediate feedback on the use, on the user experience that we didn't have before. So we have less bugs and we catch more error cases. We do get better feedback as far as what the desired lines or the desired paths are for those users. And the idea is we want this to become such a regular part of our cycle that we want to be able to be concurrently running usability tests on different features in different parts of the app at the same time. What can get tricky here, and this was built into the, the, this idea of the prototype scaffold, what can get tricky here is how do we get, you know, these five people on, on that team in Chicago to user test the export button prototype while we have five people in New York City on that other team testing the bulk syndication prototype. So it's not like we, we want to build the prototypes one at a time. We want to build a number of prototypes, have them all in production at the same time being tested by different people. So a big part of this is following a procedure and is not necessarily all code, but like an agreed upon process of the, of essentially a life cycle for what a prototype is, how it's tested, when it becomes not a prototype, either it graduates or it gets deleted, and how all of that sits in a repo and sits in your code base and doesn't become so much cruft and spaghetti code that nobody knows where any of the prototypes are and what's a prototype and what's not a prototype and all that stuff. So the prototyping article that I wrote gives you the technical work of how to create a prototype scaffold in view, but it also gives you step-by-step considerations of setting up your workflow so that you can both build a prototype and put it into production, but also maintain several in cycle at the same time. It was on my part, an experiment. I looked at my my view code and the component library. And I said, you know what? I think I can build a thing. Let me build this thing. And it worked out so well that I want everybody to do the same thing in their projects and have the same awesome experience of being able to work with a designer, work with their usability testing or their testers or their user research team and start iterating faster and make better user experiences. Because if you are front-end engineer you should be able to handle the user experience. (laughs) Amen to that. So I can totally vouch for the value that um, a usability test with the user being able to click 
through something that to them very much feels 100% real. Like the value that type of feedback can provide you both as a developer and the value that it will provide to being able to improve your product. But I wish so desperately that I had uh, done this earlier in the process. Like when you do this absolutely matters because in my, in like in our situation, we thought we were done. So, you know, we had sort of locked ourselves into, to, you know, a fairly narrow area where we could even build uh, new paths. And had it been done earlier, you know, we could have incrementally figured out the path as opposed to trying to retrofit like existing paths and be like, maybe if we make it a little wider here, maybe uh, we can pave just, just that corner. I, I don't know. So yeah, like had it been more of a true prototyping as opposed to here's our finished thing, tell us how much it sucks. <laughs> so yeah, I, I love that you have figured out this uh, system of being able to do it in a prototype fashion that is still very much real work that can be applied to the final product. Like that's, that is genius, Michelle. Good job. <laughs> well, thank you. I just wish I had thought of that. <laughs> would save me a lot of pain. Do you guys mind if we just go in just, you know, on a shallow level to how this prototype scaffold works technically? So from my understanding, you've got a wrapper that you will basically put your component through using uh, the is prop. You know how you can use dynamic components, right? So whatever you're prototyping, you pass that in to your prototype wrapper. And then the wrapper basically handles the hiding and showing based on the URL parameter. Is that right? That's correct. On a basic level? On a basic level. So let's say you joined my team and I gave you access to my repo and I said, okay, um, you're going to go work on this component. It's going to be refactored or rebuilt, whatever. And you open up that component and you're looking at the code and you will see a component registered into that, that, that says prototype wrapper, right? You instantly know exactly what that is. It is a prototype. It is a feature that someone is probably testing somewhere. And if you look at the condition on which it is, it is displayed on the, on the, uh, on the browser, it says, you know, that the route query will show if the if route query is equal to whatever that that prototype name is. And then you say, oh, so this is a prototype that shows up if that is the parameter. And then if you want to find the code for that prototype in particular, it's living inside of a, a component directory titled prototypes. And it's living in the directory alongside the prototype wrapper, which, as you said, is essentially just a wrapper for a dynamic component. So you build a component, say, separately, give it its own name, so such as an export button. And you say, okay, I'm building out this export button. This is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to use. These are its life cycles. And then you you don't reference that component directly in any of your live components. You only reference it via the prototype wrapper. And this way, and this is 
this is for the support of the developer experience, right? Because we want anyone who comes along to the repo and looks at what's going on, any new hire, anybody who shifts to the team, anybody who just happens to be trying to debug something in this code comes here and says, this is a prototype. And there's no question that this is a prototype. And we might have four or five prototypes in the code at any one time, but they're all identified as prototypes because anywhere they show up in production-ready code, they are the prototype wrapper component. And the component itself lives inside of the prototypes directory so that it, you know what, it, you know what is a prototype, you know where to find it. And the condition for the prototype wrapper component instance itself is what tells you what the parameter has to be in order for it to show up. So it is very specifically built and concepted to be obvious to a newcomer that this is a prototype. I'll give you an example. We had in Rails, there's a, a, a gem called Flipper, which is the feature Flipper gem where you have to, you can wrap a thing in a tag for Flipper and you can set what the availability is of that feature based on who's allowed to see it based on some other config. And the problem with using feature flipper, and some people might be listening to this, be like, oh, well, I have feature flipper and that's the same thing, but it's not because we would put those features in, we would allow people's access to them, but we never went back and changed the code that said flipper. So if it was a, if it was suddenly something that we were going to give everybody access to because it was finished, we just gave everybody access to it. We never actually took the flipper code out, which meant that at some point when we want to stop using feature flipper, we have to go back through our whole repo, which is a lot of code, and find all the instances of the flipper tag and take the flipper tag out. And it's like, as far as your component management goes following this system and giving a life cycle to your, to your prototypes is essential to not ending up with all of this spaghetti code everywhere, because you can build a component and just put a conditional, right? You can build a component and just say, Oh, you know, V if route query equals this thing, show this component, but then that component has to live somewhere. And then somebody has to give a crap about it when it causes a merge conflict. And then if you do multiple prototypes and your prototypes are not in this scaffold setting, you just have all of these random components and you don't know what's a prototype and what's not a prototype. And is this important or is this not important? And when you start to build out these really complex apps with lots of conditionally loading situations, the you can get inundated with V if and V else, right? You can get inundated with conditionals. And when you come to that repository fresh or you haven't worked on it in three months and then you come back and you don't remember anything and you're like, why did I put this in here? What does this conditional even mean? When does somebody get to this component? And this is like, it's, it's purposely built to be able to prototype and not to confuse the hell out of anybody. <laughs> I, I have a couple questions. So the wrapper is part of its intent to prevent any like exceptions from being thrown if uh, the intended 
reference component is deleted, like does it, it, it would prevent that from happening, right? Because it sort of shields where it lives from knowing what it's actually referencing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You could put the route query in. And if that route query was in the conditional for the prototype wrapper, it would pass the, the route query as the name to the prototype wrapper where it's looking for the dynamic component. And if that dynamic component doesn't exist, it just won't load. Yeah. But in any other scenario, if that condition isn't met, then it has no idea that it's problematic and it just goes about its business. Very nice. Okay. So my next question, how do you guys handle prototype wrapper cleanup? Like, you know, not every prototype is going to pan out probably, uh, do you ever find like forgotten prototype wrappers? <laughs> so one of the, the nice things about working in an agile workflow is that we do kind of keep on top of these projects, but we have had prototypes where they were like, yeah, this works great, but we're shifting to something else. And then we're building another prototype for something else. So like my prototypes directory right now has a number of components in there. I know the status of most of them, right? I can say that we have not had a problem where there's prototype wrappers everywhere. But again, the beauty of it is is that all you have to do is go to a repo search and search for the prototype wrapper instance. All of the prototype wrapper instances will show up and you will see where all the prototypes are being called in and what their route query conditional is. And then that the route query conditional, hey, we're not going to go forward with that project. We're not going to test that anymore. You can just delete it. And it has no ties to other stuff and you know, it hasn't been used anywhere else. So you can just take it out and you're done. It's easy cleanup. I just imagine this situation though, where like some developer rage quits and then people forget that that feature was a thing. And then everyone just assumes someone's testing that. (laughs) Sorry. My imagination goes wild sometimes. No, that's that's a fair that's a fair uh, concern. But I mean, I like suppose. it's pretty inconsequential, right? If like this one wrapper gets left in, like it's not going to affect performance, right? Um, but definitely, I mean, with any code repo and any process, there's always a chance for it to go way overboard and get off the rails. And I feel like whenever we end up refactoring something it was like wow how did we let this go so overboard and off the rails you know so i am sure there's a way to take this whole prototype wrapper concept and really really beat somebody's repo down with it but (laughs) but um goals (laughs) (laughs) the hope and intent here is that it just makes it easier for for people to to start prototyping, to start getting into usability testing with something that's actually usable and lets people kind of show their desire path and, and lets the developer work more directly with the designer and more part of the, the user experience design cycle. And it honestly sounds like you're sort of uh, adding a, a safety to any potential foot guns. <laughs> Because I mean, yeah, it, it really sounds like it's it's very despite the fact that this is going into production code, oh you've very much sort of sandboxed it, which 
that's not an easy thing to do in production code. So I, I love this pattern. I think it's great. I'm so glad that you've shared it with the world. <laughs> Does anybody have any final questions for Michelle? Nope. Okay. Where can people find you on the internet, Michelle? Uh, you can find me at, on Twitter at Michelle Sinowicz. And if you don't want to spell Michelle Sinowicz, because nobody really does, you can search for the hashtag Code Pirate, which is my personal brand. <laughs> um, makes it much easier to find me. And uh, if you want to talk about Vue.js with me directly, you can check out the Vue Vixen Slack community, where I am the moderator and also the uh, CTO of the Vue Vixens organization. She's kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Over the last many years, we've had a ton of terrific people on JavaScript Jabber. And one thing that I realized over the last few years was that we were missing out on some of the real story there. So we would talk about the topic that they were experts in and help you keep up on what's going on in the JavaScript community. But I felt like we had these terrific people on there and we didn't really talk about who they were. So I pulled together a show called My JavaScript Story. And what we do is we interview the people that we've had on JavaScript Jabber or people just from the community. Maybe we'll have you on sometime. And we talk about how they got into programming, how they got into JavaScript, what they're working on, what they're well-known for, and how they've developed their career. And some of the people are extremely well-known and come from really interesting backgrounds. So if you're curious about how your JavaScript heroes got into JavaScript, then go check out My JavaScript Story. You can find it at myjsstory.com. Let's move on to picks. Elizabeth, would you like to go first? Sure. Okay, my first pick is this applesauce that I made. <laughs> so um, if you have a slow cooker, that's the first step. And then all you have to do is take like four apples of different varieties. doesn't really matter what kind and chop them up into little pieces and throw them in there with a bunch of cinnamon and then turn it on for like two or three hours. And it makes your house smell really good. And it makes very healthy applesauce that I have been bringing to work and everyone's been saying, what is that? What smells so good? And there's no added sugar or anything. So I'm loving that and making it all the time. And then my second pick is, which everybody's probably used uh, a lot, except for me until this point, the Webpack Bundle Analyzer. I am sad to say I haven't really poked around with it too much. And I started using it recently and I was like, wow, look at all this, you know, stuff I'm pulling into my bundles and I probably don't need a lot of it. So if you haven't run that on your project recently, it's probably a good idea. And that's it. Awesome. Ben, would you like to go? Yeah. So recently uh, I've been watching Lucifer, which is on Netflix, uh, which is a fun TV series. Oh my gosh. Uh, did you watch it? <laughs> I've seen it and just like over, not my, I don't watch it, but I've just seen it in passing and I was like, is this show real? When he crowded, I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but when I saw like the wings, I'm like, is this a joke or is this a joke? Yeah, it's an interesting Sorry, take. On, no, it's all good. It's just, a, it's an interesting take on, I guess, maybe philosophically on the whole concept of good and evil and what it means. Because, you know, we have a lot of these traditional um, outlooks on that kind of stuff. So it's an interesting take on a lot of those. It takes on a lot of those traditional ideologies. But for my second pick, it's Super Pumped. Uh, I know I did this a couple of episodes back, but I finished reading it and it was just so good. And given the recent disaster with the WeWork IPO and everything, like 
I think it's a really good read for those of us in tech, just to really understand like what's going on with this sort of obsession over like the founder cult mentality and like the dangers of it, honestly. And Super Pump does such a great job covering what happened in Uber. So I'm kind of hoping there's like another one on WeWork because I'd love to see the meltdown that happened as a result. But anyways, those are my two picks for this week. Awesome. All right, Michelle. I will say- Oh, oh, sorry. I just want to say, go I'm, ahead, not, go ahead. I'm not dissing your show choice. <laughs> <laughs> Are you never, sure? So I've never seen it seriously, so it could very well be very good. It was just in passing when I saw it. You know, I, I can't necessarily like evaluate on the merits of goodness. It's, just, it's been a fun like intellectual experiment, experiment. So it's been, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll have to give it a try. Everyone's totally judging you. (laughs) You mean she's judging me? (laughs) I am not. I'm not. It's okay. It's okay, Elizabeth. We're on to you. It's it's not a big deal. (laughs) All right. And Michelle, uh, do you have any picks for us? Okay. So since we're, we're doing TV shows, I know I'm a few seasons behind here, but it is now on Netflix. So The Good Place. Yes. So I've been watching. Oh my Binge God. Watching. So we much did love. Again. Didn't you pick that last week, Ben? Somebody did. No, right? I said something about like what oh. the fork, and you were like, wait. You oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Holy forking shirt sure balls. balls. Yeah. <laughs> what a bench. <laughs> I was about to use the benches. <laughs> <laughs> so I am very much enjoying uh, the good place. I just started season two. Um, okay. Oh. I, think, I think season two. I think it's up to season three on Netflix, yes. and then uh-huh. it's still going live. Yeah, on... season four just started, and it it's will the be the final season. Final yeah. season. What network is season four on? Because I don't even NBC? know. NBC. Yeah, NBC. So, okay. You have so, to let me yeah. know when you finish season so, two. It, that uh, would be my favorite season. Current episodes are available on Hulu, just FYI. I am very much enjoying the acting chops of Ted Danson. Right? Oh, I love him in it. So good. It's the perfect balance of like subtlety and just outright like craziness. Right. Perfect. And I'm also going to pick a book. This one is an surprisingly easy read. Uh, it is called Resilient Management. It's written by Lara Hogan. It's published by a list of, a book apart, sorry, a book apart, not a list apart. It was surprising to me, I guess, because I am not a manager and I have never been quite sure that I ever want to be a manager. And as an IC and not a manager at my company, I wasn't sure that it would be useful for me in any capacity, but it is really, really great takes on communicating and working with people of different personality types. It's a a short book and it's an easy read. And I think that even though it's aimed at managers, I think everybody should read it. If you work in a situation with a manager or with a tech team, because it's, it's a solid read and it's short, which I liked. Yeah. I like short things too. (laughs) Huh, that could have... Anyway, let's just <laughs> leave that one alone. <laughs> uh, all right, books. I guess you like short... Yeah. <laughs> short reading things. There we go. Because I also like short articles. <laughs> all right, uh, and I guess it's time for my picks. Uh, this week I have one pick, and it's uh, Dear Privilege, It's Me, Chelsea, which is a documentary available on Netflix. 
by Chelsea Handler, who if you are not familiar with her, she's a comedian and author. Basically, it's her exploring how white privilege uh, has impacted American culture and also how her own uh, career and life has benefited from it. I thought it was very interesting and compelling. And especially if you're white, you should you should really watch it. <laughs> I'm just, just going to leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Uh, And I guess uh, that's it for this episode of Views on View. Thank you for joining us. And until next week, enjoy the view. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.